Hello and welcome to the 224th episode of Ranking Review. I am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and I will be joined this episode by Mr. Matthew Risling to discuss six horror films on the subject of bad magic. As always, you should go into the podcast understanding that there will be spoilers for the six movies being reviewed, as well as coarse language, usually from me. Please send your feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website is at rankinreview.ca because uh, I'm up here in Canada. And if you need something to plug into your ears in the intervening weeks between podcasts, you should listen to the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, hosted by Mr. Jason Dubray, as well as check out the Terror Table Podcast, which is a great quality podcast local to me. Thank you so much for your ears. Let's get into the second last episode of this season of Rank and Review. Mr. Matthew Risling is back on Rankin Review, and I am super, super grateful. You know, it's almost a year exactly since we recorded our Bizarro Land uh, for Kids and Crocodiles episode. <laughs> oh yeah, that was that was my first Christmas back in Canada. That's what I doing. <laughs> and uh, we're we're doing this one over the computer instead of doing face to face, but uh, we we make do here on Rankin Review. But um, I think that. We have a similarly bizarre list of movies, although they have a lot more in common. In fact, uh, as we were saying just before we hit record here, like a lot of these movies hit the exact same plot points and have some of very similar reveals or very similar motivations. Uh, the theme of the movies I'm saying is bad magic. There's sort of people encountering. <laughs> but it could also be like birth cults or like baby cults. Yep. Yeah, no, that's not unfair either. Do you think that's better? Well, maybe baby... It's your podcast, I don't know. Baby cult, bad magic. I like baby cults. (laughs) We just did a cult episode, now we're doing baby cults. But to me, I've got like this uh, baby geniuses version in my head now of just a bunch of kids in diapers sitting in a pentagram. (laughs) I'm picturing the Muppet Babies. Exactly, the Muppet Babies, but with pentagrams. (laughs) You mean like the animated Muppet Babies or the uh, Puppet Baby Muppets? (laughs) <laughs> oh, I didn't know there was a puppet one. Definitely the animated one. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of scenes where they have animated Muppet babies, and they're kind of weird and disturbing looking to me. 
Let's see how far off the map I can stray. <laughs> Muppet Babies. <laughs> um, the last time you and I talked, uh, did a full episode anyway, we were talking about cults. And that you said that it was a fairly strong uh, selection of movies as far as the quality. Yeah, coming from... I was doing Ghosts with you for a long time. Uh, and I thought going Ghosts to Cults would be a step down naturally. But uh, it was a real step up. <laughs> And um, there's a lot of cult and supernatural stuff in this one, so I thought there'd be a pretty good chance that you would also enjoy this. But uh, obviously, uh, just from what I've heard from our little preamble, you're not in love with all of these movies in the same way you had a pretty good time with The Last Bunch. Um, I wouldn't say that. What I said specifically was that The Deep Ones wasn't the movie that I enjoyed the least. <laughs> but that could be a backhanded compliment to The Deep Ones. I see. Uh, um I didn't universally love them, but I think this was, like, on balance, a really high-quality list of movies. Uh, I was saying right before we started that um, I, I binged all of these in the last 72 hours. Uh, <laughs> so sometimes when I watch six movies in 72 hours, it feels like it's going to be a chore. Uh, but almost every one of these movies, you know, I got into it, and I was like, yeah, okay, there's something here. Yeah. And... Um... Most of them don't overstay their welcome. I mean, Hereditary pulled it off. That's over two hours. But most of the time, especially, I guess I'm starting to, to see the formula more because I watched these two groups of movies so close together. I remember defending the cult movies in our previous episodes saying that they're not, quote, as formulaic <laughs> as like your slasher movie or your rom-com. After this bunch of six, I feel like I need to eat my words at least minimally because we see the same character, you know, the person from the outside who's coming in trying to help ending up having a grim fate or, you know. <laughs> and they all, all, but maybe one of them end up on a real bummer. Yeah. Uh, it's the, uh, whoever coined that, the um, phrase that could be the title of the Twilight Zone, nice try, asshole. That's or right. This would fit, nice try, <laughs> asshole. Yeah. Uh, they are dark and uh, I do... Yeah, I, I do just find that maybe there is more of a, like, the formula, like I said, than, than I was comfortable admitting before. But I do think that there's a little bit more wiggle room here than you have in your average slasher movie. There's usually this sort of intangible floating evil that uh, we kind of get to know over the course of the movie. And sort of the big reveal, as you were just saying, usually seems to be that it's not something you can beat. <laughs> Do not fuck with this stuff. I think my favorite version of this is a movie called The Dark Song. If you haven't seen it and you liked these types of movies, I think you would probably get behind that one. Yeah. But, uh... It's trying to do it as straight-faced as possible. Like, this is just chalk and candles and very minimal sort of sort of scares. The movies in this list, for the most part, are a little bit more aggressive than that. They're sort of dark, supernatural horror movies um, and, and not feel-good numbers. So most of these actually did not find an audience, but uh, I have good things to say about, I'm going to say, most of them. <laughs> All right. Is there anything you want to say by way of introduction? No, I think we should dive right in. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, as usual, we're going to give them the heads up about spoilers and about swears, but the six bad magic or baby cult movies that Matt and I are going to be reviewing, we have Anything for Jackson, The Dark, The Dark and the Wicked, The Deep Ones, Jug Face, and we're going to finish with The Hallow. 
Thanks, brother. Dr. Walt, huh? Morning. Here to clean your drive. No, no, everything's okay. Thank you so much for the book. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. So you've seen some ghosts, huh? No one has more time than a grieving family. We can do this. He's coming back to us. Trick or treat. So anything for Jackson makes me proud to be a Canadian. <laughs> It is a very Canadian movie, shot in, obviously in a very Canadian winter. And uh, this duo, uh, Justin G. Dick and uh, Keith Cooper, have been working in Vancouver doing like Hallmark Christmas movies for 11 years. You know, it kind of makes sense. A lot of the framing was like Hallmark movies. There's, <laughs> there's a lot of framing of the interior of the house. Um, it really could have had a sweet Christmas movie playing. But, like, that's been their bread and butter. It, maybe it's not what they want to be doing, but they've been making their living making movies about sweet Christmas romance, and, you know, good for them. And then all of a sudden, there's this really different aberration satanic movie on their on their schedule. Uh, anything for Jackson. It stars Julian Richings, the often-mentioned Canadian actor who you'll see in all Canadian TV shows and a lot of bit parts in movies and very rarely he's actually obligated to be in every canadian horror movie i think he might be he might be uh the in his older years he's getting bigger roles it seems like for a lot of times he was like a, a lucky charm you would just see him for a scene and then he would be gone <laughs> but uh, he and his wife played by sheila mccarthy who's also been a canadian actress forever when i first moved to saskatoon super channel was playing i heard the mermaid singing this mm -hmm. indie movie, like, it was their Canadian content filler. It was on, like, every day. <laughs> that movie was, like, the last hurrah for when Canadian films were getting real government funding yeah. and Canada had a cinema. I think she was... She, you can't call her a movie star exactly, but she's iconic in a certain kind of way. Tangentially, I watched movies with my boys last night. Owen picked Die Hard 2, and there she was. As the okay. reporter in Die Hard 2, I'd completely forgotten that she was in there. <laughs> so she, she splashed a little bit into the United States, got a little bit of other work. But I've seen these people forever watching TV and movies in Canada. And here they are playing this strangely sweet old couple <laughs> who have kidnapped a pregnant woman and joined a satanic cult after their, their uh, grandson had passed away in a car accident and their daughter had been forever changed by the accident, uh, they, they want Jackson back and they're willing to do anything to get Jackson back. But they're not comfortable with the icky factors of the whole cult and the murder and the kidnapping. And the darkly hilarious, but I think kind of effective humor that is kind of slightly drizzled over top of the horrible story that is unfolding uh, adds some like real good flavor. Story. 
a horrible story in like they kidnap this pregnant woman they've got her chained down to the bed like this satanic ritual misery uh, which is what I thought the movie was going to be but then about a third of the way through perhaps they do a preliminary ritual and it summons a bunch of really gruesome ghosts and so there's like there's this weird tonal juggling that's going on with like you said they're a sweet old couple yep uh, uh, there are definitely a couple of lull moments, um, like it just is just arid, bone dry humor. But then, like some ghosts that that can compete with any of the best ghosts I can think of. Well, even the minimalist stuff. There's a ghost that's just like a Halloween costume of a ghost, and mm-hmm. Jackson himself is just this toddler that looks a little gray. But I found them quite unsettling. Like in a way, I wasn't fully prepared for. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, I think the one that has to take the cake is that disgusting old woman flossing her teeth yeah. so hard that she's sawing the teeth out of her gums, and they're falling out one by one. And they all get their moment, sort of splashy boo moment, but they never really leave. They're like hanging around the house after that ritual happens the temperature of the horror gets turned up significantly. Mm-hmm. And there's also the sort of weird Canadian quirk to it. The character, the neighbor guy, who aggressively wants to shovel the snow from their driveway. He's like kind of a dick about it, but it's like a weird, what is this scene going for? Well, he's, he first is a dick about it, and then we learn that his wife left him and that he's desperate. Like He's been kicked out of his house. His wife was cheating on him. He's worried about losing his contracts. Uh, so he's like, he needs this job. And then later, when our sweet old, I don't know if we want to call him the protagonist, but whatever, <laughs> Julian Richings character, he doesn't even really have a tender moment. He just asks if he should send flowers or something. And then he has a, the snow removal guy gets very Canadian. It's like, I'll just do it for free. Thanks. Yeah. Showing <laughs> that you care. But, like, he was a weird character. And I, I was thinking he was going to, like, have secretly been part of the cult and was keeping an eye on him or something. I don't, like, I thought there's a card to play. When he, you know, goes to the snowblower... It felt like, man, I totally should have seen that coming, <laughs> but I didn't. But the thing about that scene, um, it's be hard without context, so apologies <laughs> to your viewers, but the, him sticking his head in the snowblower wasn't the creepiest thing. For me, the creepiest thing was when he just told them that they'd done the ritual right and Jackson was coming, and they're like, what, what the fuck? Like, How do you know so this? <laughs> yeah. And just immediately sticks his head in the snowblower. And he's got this big shit-eating grin on his face while he's doing it. He seems really happy about this. <laughs> so, But I think, I, I bring it up because it's sort of like, I think it presents well the vibe of the movie in that it's an uncomfortable comedy. I do think that there is enough comedy in it that there, that there is deliberate humor. But the scares really work and the darkness of the movie kind of slowly takes over. And I guess I find it interesting that, I mean, I'm kind of cheering for this old satanic couple. (laughs) Like, I mean, I guess more than I am the supernatural evil that they've summoned. They've made all these terrible choices. And of course, I'm sympathetic and cheering for the woman that they have kidnapped. But I don't hate these people. And it's weird for considering the amount of evil that they are responsible for. Like, I kind of felt bad for how this played out for them. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, 
I don't want to say especially Julian Richings because <laughs> Sheila McCarthy's character was just delightful. I mean, just their their two performances could have carried the movie if it wasn't for all that other good stuff that was going on. But when we learned that it was Sheila McCarthy that was responsible for killing Jackson because she was driving. She was driving the car. And he basically sold his soul because his wife was really sad. So he's like, okay, I'll, I'll sell my soul to the devil just to like cheer her up. It's like, Oh, oh, that's sweet. (laughs) Well, and just like the note that she reads when this woman wakes up in the soundproof basement room and she's like, I first of all want to apologize. (laughs) Like, it's just, I, I, it does feel distinctly Canadian. It is not really advertised as like where where it's set in the world, but it feels like a Canadian story to me. This old couple seems like they could be your neighbors. I also it, want sorry for me. It felt not only Canadian, but felt very Southern Ontario. There you it, go. Yeah, it didn't feel like the kind of horror movie that would have been filmed in Vancouver. Um, like a lot of the those cheap Lovecraft adaptations get filmed there. A lot of really quick not-so-great movies, yeah. but there's there's this kind of Ontario feel that I like. But yeah, I don't know. I, I clicked into that vibe, and I liked it. Like, it feels like one of those unstable Canadian crazy indie movies, because it kind of is one. And as far as you could possibly want to be from a Hallmark Christmas movie. <laughs> I wanted to talk about this guy, Josh Kudos. He plays Ian. He's another uh, satanic dude that they meet, but who's like, super serious like mr intense satanic guy i thought he was really really well cast one of the greatest reveals and i can't even articulate why that this movie presents to me is when he pulls his hair up and reveals that he's bald towards (laughs) the end when all the supernatural shit starting to really start unfold like he's always been hiding and like i don't know what's the significance of that choice but he just suddenly pulls his hair off, and at first I thought something supernatural had happened. But... It was like a bad comb over, and he just pushed it back to reveal how combed over it was. Uh, yeah, there, but there's just something strange about it. Like, <laughs> I don't know, how, I don't know why that was. Like, what? At first I really thought some bad magic had taken place, but it was like he suddenly just revealed himself <laughs> to them. <laughs> but I really liked that actor, and I really liked the way. He brought this super serious intensity to these cult scenes because they could really easily become giggly, but he won't let it happen. Yeah, and he he had a really nice. He was able to sell like the kind of person who will bring about a demonic apocalypse. But when he was in their house, kind of exasperated, he felt like IT support. You know what I yeah. mean? Like <laughs> they had done their initial ritual wrong, and he was just kind of frustrated with them. Um, but he also kind of knew that the gates of hell were half open in their attic. And then he had that line about, like, so I'm going to go. i got to get some things, and I don't really feel comfortable in your house right now. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I guess the long short of it is that the movie really works for me. For all the warmth, I guess, in quotation marks, I, I describe the movie, of course, is going to a dark place. And uh, it's... Another one of many movies we're going to be discussing this week about the destruction of a family. But for the subject matter, it's got a lot of fun and entertainment to it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, 
as I was saying, I, I binged these movies. Um, I took a half day at work today so I could watch two back to back. This was the last one in my in my journey, and I was kind of putting it off because I thought the title, anything Preacher Jackson, wasn't all that promising. Um, but man, I, I it was a great one to end on. Yeah. Uh, it's it was a sold to Shutter, so as of like it's mainly available if you are part of that horror service Shutter. But unlike certain other services, Netflix, they actually release physical copies of their movies. So if I like it enough and I want to add it to my wall, I can, and I respect them for that. I would say anything Bridget Jackson belongs on any proper horror lover's wall. It's especially in Canada like uh, Julian Richings and McCarthy they 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 kill it in this movie over and above the fact like how many horror movies are about an old couple <laughs> like we see so many teenagers go into the woods and get killed in this one this is a classic Canadian story about an old couple that wants to resurrect their dead grandchild at any cost and I think that's something we can get behind. <laughs> and had a, last thing, one of my favorite basically opening lines of the movie, when it's them in their kitchen, we have no idea what's going on. The, the atmosphere is a little bit stilted, and he's talking about how one of the cups on his pants are, is unevenly hemmed, and he's concerned that he looks like a rap person. <laughs> what? No, Julian Richings, you do not look like a rap person. <laughs> God bless Bucky Hate. Uh, oh, this is so your father. Daddy! What a surprise. I'm so happy we're here, baby. Find it today. Sarah's dead. She's not. I feel it. I know it. She's not. Shh. Don't cry. Sarah! Are you in here? I saw a girl. You saw Sarah? No. Let's get you cleaned up and find someone who knows who you are. is directed by John Fawcett, who is interesting to me because he brought us another great Canadian classic horror movie called Ginger Snaps. Oh. Um, this was not made in Canada. This is a very Welsh movie dealing with Welsh myth mythology, and it's got uh, Maria Bella, who I think is very talented and very attractive, and Sean Bean, who I think is very talented and very attractive. <laughs> and... Uh, it, it's a weird case for me because there's so much working for this movie. I have Welsh blood in me. I have interest in the subject matter. I like the cast, and I like the idea of exploring specifically some like real Welsh mythology. 
But uh, I remember the first time I watched it thinking that was kind of chilly and effective. And watching it again for the podcast, to my dismay almost, I was kind of detached from the movie. I felt kind of not connected to it in a way that it didn't affect me to be scary. I connected more to the parental angle of like two parents dealing with this very troubled, very psychologically damaged teenage girl daughter and her going missing and they're falling apart like I connected more to that side of the movie than I did to the sort of supernatural goings-on and it's strange like I don't know if it's me or the movie if it's fatigue of watching these types of movie but I went from really liking the movie to being kind of indifferent to it as I was watching it for this podcast and I hope you can help me figure out what happened yeah so uh when I watched it and the credits went up and it had Maria Bellows and Sean Bean. I was a little bit apprehensive because I don't tend to like horror movies that have name actors. Right. And like both of them are character actor enough that it wasn't it wasn't like seeing Harrison Ford or something like that. But I was worried that it would get a bit of a DreamWorks vibe. Uh, and then watching it, I liked the setting a lot. The they did a pretty good job with the mood from the beginning, but throughout the whole thing, I was just getting these crazy dark water bumps. Um, no, the Jennifer Connelly one? The movie with Jennifer Connelly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And actually, the plot is very, very similar to Dark Water, and the ending is very similar to Dark Water. And so, um, my I have a lot of notes about how it's quite conventional and it could be a good mystery but everything is very telegraphed um you know it has the scene early on with the cell phone not working or it has a scene early on with the daddy and daughter playing morse code together so you know there's going to be some morse code tapping and it was like everything was in place and it was okay but um the ending really grabbed me by the guts and just made me feel sad and not good and so um it was it felt like it felt like a very very good paint by numbers movie but a paint by numbers movie but then it had an ending that weirdly affected me see and that's what i remembered about the movie like when i first watched it and coming to revisit it like it really hit at the end it was kind of a slow build and a slow bunch of reveals but when when the punches came that really hit. And for some reason this time, maybe because I, I, I knew what where it was going, or just again, the amount of movies I'd been watching, it didn't hit me in the same way. I also had kept on looking at this, the, the neighbor guy who dealt with the sheep jumping off the cliff and had a lot of exposition to deal with. Is, uh, uh, David, I, I actually I made a note that I really like that actor. Well, yeah, Maurice Roves is the actor, and I'm like, where the hell do I know you from? Because I know your face. You've got this character actor face. In the 90s, for whatever reason, I watched this movie, The Last of the Mohicans, a lot. <laughs> the Daniel <laughs> Day-Lewis. I watched that with you and your dad, actually. That's right. And um, 
it's, I, I still think it's a great movie. I have a lot of fun with it. But he's Madeline Stowe's dad in that movie. He has a really grim death <laughs> from uh, Magua in that movie. And I guess that must be it because I didn't recognize most of them. But I thought he was really good. I mean, it was one of these characters who's like very foreboding and it's not safe for your girl. And he clearly knows stuff and he has his exposition to drop. And eventually he does. Like, it's that role. But I really did like him. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there is no point in that movie where you think this guy's making it out alive, but it's a little bit sad when he dies. No, yeah. Um, the other thing that I think might take away from it is just sort of the repetition. That character of the neighbor who tries to warn you, but then tells you the backstory, but then either disappears or dies. We're going to counter that a few times <laughs> throughout these <laughs> series of movies, right? And sheep and animal and livestock acting strangely. We're going to encounter that a lot in these stories. The novel it's based off of is actually called Sheep. I don't think he tries to warn them away exactly, right? He just he just knows something's going on. He's not like you and your daughter never should have come here. No, no. But it could not be. It might not be safe for the little. Or, or may, no, maybe I'm getting it jumbled with the hallow. They say it might not be safe for your little one in the hallow. Um, I also appreciate the yin and yang that they're going through. This is probably the benefit of it coming from a novel that it is revealed that uh, the relationship between the mother and the daughter has been really deteriorating since the separation. And there was actually a suicide attempt by this preteen daughter uh, that sort of was the precipice which led to this trip to, to Wales. And at the towards the end, the climactic moment of the movie involves Maria Bello grabbing a little girl and forcibly <laughs> jumping off of a cliff symbolically committing suicide and there's kind of an interesting yin and yang of that but it was set up strangely like in a weird way if we'd known from the beginning where maria bella was coming from the punch of that might have actually held stronger for me yeah that wasn't my issue with that my issue with that is there is so these are like these sheer rock cliffs it's somewhere in wales uh and sometime in when was it, the 1920s, 30s, some priest, uh, his daughter died, and so he figured out this sort of dark, whatever, Celtic magic ritual where he sacrificed his congregation and got them to sacrifice themselves to the water to bring her back. And there was this scene with all of these people, like with suitcases and stuff on a cliff, and they were falling off one by one and some of them were really into it and some of them were kind of scared and I think that scene could have been really powerful but then they would do these weird cuts where they would you'd see these bodies hitting the water and it just I was getting like extreme sports vibes from it like just <laughs> you could just see them coming out and go whoop yeah whales, summer ever. <laughs> uh, so stuff like that was like all of the the tone that every anything for Jackson struck with like being like a little bit dark and surreal and things happening really quick yeah. and just not in typical movie tone, this had kind of typical movie tone. And it was definitely telling you right out the gate, this is dark, this is dour, this is sinister, this is going someplace weird. Whereas with, yeah, the unstableness of anything for Jackson, you could be going anywhere, you don't really know. <laughs> But I do want to give some credit to uh, Sean Bean and Maria Bella, too, because um, I think they very credibly mourning what they believe to be at first, the death of their daughter, and then uh, clinging on to whatever desperate supernatural threads they can to believe that they can maybe get her back. 
Um, and Sean Bean lives through the movie. Was yeah, he does. Um, <laughs> actually, Sean Bean. My sense was he didn't really, for the most part, expect he could get his daughter back. So when their daughter falls off the cliffs or she goes missing mysteriously, this other little girl shows up, and Sean Bean, who's just basically the perfect father, kind of fulfills a fatherly role for yeah. her. And mostly, I think he's he's concerned with the well-being of his ex-wife and this new little daughter uh he's he, at some point he becomes sold on the supernatural but only really when she jumps off the cliff yeah which he tries to stop in the first place but again what a horrible moment for him like he's already lost so much and then to witness that not only his wife killing herself is what he's watching but grabbing this little girl and jumping off this cliff with her like damn but uh, it's a theme that goes through a lot of these movies when it's family it's incredibly personal, and you will go that more than that extra mile. <laughs> I don't know if I would uh, grab some other kid and jump off a cliff for one of my boys. Depends on my mood that day. <laughs> so it depends on which boy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, the thing that really got me at the end was not just that we find out, you know, after she has this climactic rescuing her daughter from so she goes into the water and then she's kind of like in this hell where she's like in this torture dungeon um which is kind of like the abattoir that was on the property um but sort of this just eternal torture thing that's going to happen to her but then she fights her way out gets her daughter back her daughter returns home and then there was actually I think a really good shot where she's following her daughter in the house and the door closes on her face because we it's revealed that she's not really back yeah and I thought okay well that's fine she she sacrificed herself saved her daughter that's very sweet and then there's a later reveal and the movie just kind of kept going for a little too long you know yeah something's happening and it turns out that this other little girl has replaced her girl and you're like oh shit but then that final scene where then the torture guy comes and she's just basically in hell to get tortured forever so like you know nice try asshole so you didn't get your daughter back you unleashed an evil little girl onto your surviving husband and you're going to spend an eternity in torment and credits (laughs) um and i don't know i watched it last night and i when i went to bed i kind of had like a kind of a sad feeling in the pit of my stomach and so for a paint by numbers movie to make me feel that strong of emotion that that's something and it does get the job done and i did want to say that i don't want to tell people not to watch it i just want to say it i watched the movie twice and i had two very different experiences when i did so maybe it's just a one-time ride <laughs> yeah could could easily be is there anything else you want to say about the dark i know i've been kind of short on this one no, not really. Um, I yeah, I, I thought it was fine. It was better than I was expecting, and it left an impression, but it, it's not in my top 50% on this list. Spoiler alert. Agreed. Your mama, she was saying things. She would sit right beside him just whispering. But you weren't talking to him. We found it in her pocket. She didn't believe in God. What does it matter whether you believe? I found Mom's diary. 
What if she saw something out there? I told y'all not to come. There are things in this world, horrible things, wicked, and they come for whoever they want. I saw something. She wasn't crazy. Do you smell him? He's close now. He's not out there. He's already here. Matthew just said, I'm going to have to really carry this next review of The Dark and the Wicked. I don't know if that means it means that it's not a big uh, big fan or what, but uh, it's written and directed by Brian Bertino, and you and I have talked about him before. Uh, we, we reviewed this movie called The Monster, where a mother and daughter were trapped in a car on a secluded road. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, same, that. same director, same writer. Uh, he also did this movie, The Strangers, about a couple who were getting sieged by these masked stalkers in the middle of the night again in a secluded place in the woods and his weird gift seems to be to be able to do very familiar setups but effectively the monster is basically every monster movie you've ever seen but it's well handled well executed totally worth your time watching if you like that sort of thing the strangers if you're into like a home invasion thriller absolutely does the job it, i mean <laughs> it plays within the realm of every other home invasion movie but it it does the job and the dark and the wicked is set on a secluded farm about a an entity that's attacking an entire family and whittling them away one at a time there's nothing basically too surprising in what's happening throughout the story but once again bertino through the casting and the style i think makes a pretty effective horror thriller here that has a couple of uh, images that i had a hard time shaking it doesn't reinvent yeah. anything necessarily, but I think it's really good at being what it is. Yeah, I think it has it has a a fairly paper thin plot that is just about hanging set pieces on. Yeah. Right. So it'll it'll just kind of go from scene to scene, and you know some creepy thing will happen, and then some creepy thing will happen, and then some creepy thing will happen, and then basically everyone dies and then it's over yeah well i mean that that is a fair synopsis of the events of the movie but i think you might underselling how effective some of the like intangibly uncannily creepy images that we're subjected to are uh this one scene where this guy gets confronted by the naked corpse of his mom in the barn in the middle of the night and nobody wants to see their mom naked. Nobody wants to see their mom dead. Nobody wants... And there's something about the way she appears and the way she's slowly approaching him. Like, we've seen this sort of imagery before, but it seemed strangely dreamlike and, like, personal. The The evil attack feels really personal <laughs> in this movie. Or, like, the mom chopping vegetables and then cutting her fingers off. But keeping like, cutting? It, 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 like, after the first cut is made, you'd think she would stop, but she just keeps going? Yeah, and, and like, you kind of know from when the scene begins that that's where the scene's going to go, but when, when that happens, you're like, ugh, <laughs> yes. I don't want to see that. <laughs> and I think that's true of basically the movie itself. 
You know pretty much right away what you're going to get and where the movie's going, yet in spite of that, it delivers the goods. <laughs> and that's Bertino, man. <laughs> yeah, so do we want to give a bit of a synopsis about what it's about? Well, so it's it starts off with this old lady at the farmhouse and they've got goats and the goats are really scared and she goes into the barn and there seems to be some sort of charms or something and then when she dies no she doesn't die but it seems like there's a demon trying to get in the house or some sort of monster a presence reveals itself some sort of some sort of presence is revealing itself to her and she's caring for her husband who's clearly on his deathbed and her kids worried for her and worried for their dad want to come and help and she's telling them to stay away, stay away, stay away. And the kids are like, do we respect these bizarre wishes or do we go see what the fuck's going on? And of course, you go see what the fuck is going on. <clears throat> and yeah, the, the, the whole place is cursed and there's this escalation of supernatural activities and like personal attacks. Uh, it seems to like figure out what your weakness is. The older brother uh, is distracted because he's away from his family the whole time here so the evil power uses his love of his wife and daughters to trick him at the end of the movie and uh or the love of your parents or the wanting to say goodbye to your father it always seems to use that one personal chink in your armor to sink its teeth into you yeah and actually the the scene where the brother goes back home and his wife and daughters had committed suicides in his house like that was a real gut punch of a scene and even more so when you found out that didn't really happen <laughs> yeah right after he finished he's slitting his own throat and, and then they come home and yeah and, it, it's like yeah. the worst possible scenario ever it goes from you losing your family and not being able to take it and killing yourself to suddenly realizing you've been tricked but your throat's cut and your daughters are about to watch you die in front of them. Not understanding. Well, and he just very shamefully, i.e. with a lot of shame, not that he should be ashamed for it, because, you know, he had, he had a horrible vision in the farmhouse and like, I gotta fuck off, I gotta leave. I gotta, yeah. And then his sister really wants him to stay and he's like, you know, I love I, you, sis. <laughs> I've got higher priorities. And then, yeah, he goes home, his family is dead, and he's lost everything, and he kills himself, and then it turns out they're not dead, and he just sees them as he bleeds out. Nice try, asshole. <laughs> and uh, honestly, the sister too, right? She stays with her father, you know, I'm not going to leave you, I love you, blah, 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 there's lots of love in this house. And then, you know, as soon as he dies, the demon comes, gets her. She does the right thing, and she pays a brutal penalty for it. There's also great supporting players in here. Lynn Andrews plays this nurse who's there to help out. Yeah, I, I wanted to give her mentions. Because it would seem to be one of these thankless throwaway roles, but she makes a total, complete person out of this character, and her exit from the movie is so troubling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh say that she's knitting very shortly before she makes her exit. Yeah, exactly. This is a movie where people do self-harm. Also, Xander Berkeley, who plays the sinister priest guy with the weird, deliberate sort of whisper to his voice and delivery. Okay, 
Okay, were you getting, like, mad Poltergeist 2 vibes from him? <laughs> I should have been, because he was totally that guy. But Xander Berkeley is a character actor who has been in everything. Like, uh, he's in Terminator 2, he's in The Rock, he's, like, he shows up in, like, two scene roles in, in, like, all sorts of movies. He's just one of these guys that's always been around. And uh, usually it's just a one or two scene role. And I don't know, I was a little bit debating on whether or not he was overplaying his hand with this sinister priest character, but I can't say that I disliked it. <laughs> So I don't think he was, because he shows up, and he's like this fire and brimstone preacher, and you're like, oh, you maybe like dial it back a little bit, but then it turns out when she, she tracks him down, calls him, he's like, I'm not even in that stage. Like, I have no idea who you are, why you're calling me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when he shows up on their porch at three o'clock in the morning or whatever, yeah, this is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> was that other... There was that other lovable elderly guy who seemed like another one of those um, character actors that shows up a lot to get killed. Did he get his black back blown out by a shotgun in misery? Was it that guy? No, it's not the same dude, but I could see why you do that. Um, I can't remember the name of the actor in this one, but um, yeah, he played the, the almost the same thing happens actually in anything for Jackson. Someone gets close to discovering the secret and then they inexplicably end up shooting themselves. Right. Um, there's no help for them. Like, there's no outside source that can come in and pull them out of there, and there's nothing within themselves that's going to allow them to abandon their home place. I, I guess the real thing that's maybe missing of the movie, uh, or whether it is or not, we can discuss, but the why. What, why is this being inflicted on this family? Was there something that they did? Had it always been there? Like, what? why? Why did all of this terrible, terrible stuff happen? Yeah, and I think, like, on one hand, I don't really mind, because who knows, when you're dealing with demons, does a demon really need a why? Yeah. Um, but it could have been one of those horror movies that's also a metaphor for something. Like, in the same way that Monster, although a little bit on the nose, was a metaphor for this absentee alcoholic mother, and this monster is kind of a manifestation of that in some way. One of the problems that I had with this movie is it did just seem kind of random and pointless. <laughs> like, it, it reminded me a lot of some Japanese horror, like Suicide Club, where just, no, I don't know, people start to die. Like, The Grudge, where, yeah, I don't know, you just died. You um, never had a choice. But again, repetition is part of horror. And then they slowly walk down the hallway and there's a boo. And then there's, you know, but... Uh, it's a double-edged sword, you're right, as far as the reveal. May, what what answer would we accept? And uh, Or if they did answer all the questions, would I be sitting here saying, it was going kind of neat and tidy that it was all explained, oh, they shouldn't have entrenched on so-and-so's land or whatever. <laughs> like, uh, it's something, something like offensively dumb, like the Dusk Till Dawn prequels, where it explains why this titty bar in the middle of Mexico has vampires like just don't worry about it doesn't matter there's a there's a bar full of vampires and let's have some fun um this i would not describe as fun again there's a, a scene where this uh phantom woman is like cutting herself in front of one of our characters and there's this weird time lapse i don't know she's somehow moving slower than everything else on the frame and it's disturbing there's just something <laughs> troubling about it um it doesn't have a lot of context but Oof. <laughs> mm. 
And uh, that's what this movie is full of for me. Like, like it's, you're talking about the finger scene. Oof. The naked mom in the barn. Oof. The, the, the ghost yeah. cutting it. This, this movie is set pieces. Like, that's what it is. More, more so than most, I think even most horror. It's just like, here's one scene, like one really well composed scene where something gross happens or something sad happens and then here's another and here's another and there's no like I, I think this movie has no arc I mean correct me if you're wrong I don't think there's a character arc I don't think there's a narrative arc it's just bad things happen not a, not a lot of lessons are learned or if they are they're learned at the, at the moment of death which I mean it doesn't really have a big payoff I mean, what lessons are learned? Like, you got me. Yeah, I was too fooled. You used my love of my family against me. Well played, evil. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I want to say points for good execution because when your narrative uh, is that thin, if anything goes off, if you have a wonky performance in one of your leads or uh, you have a poor delivery of one of your scares, it becomes make fun of a bull really quickly. And I did not laugh at this movie <laughs> like at all, at all. There's another movie that we're going to talk about that I laughed at, but uh, this was not it. So this one, weirdly, um, for me, it was a similar experience to yours with The Dark, um, because at the, about the 20-minute point, I was getting these really strong deja vu vibes. And then about you know, 10 or 15 minutes later, I was like nagged, like, have I seen this? This seems so familiar. And then I remembered that I saw it, like, not that long ago, like July, something like that. Oh, it was, wow. I was watching this with, like, this DVD with a friend that was over. And I think the first time I saw it, it was pretty impactful, but I didn't think it was great. But the second time, I weirdly had no memories of it because there's nothing about it to really stick with you. Like, it's, it's just really good set pieces, but it's not exactly a movie. Some of the images stuck with me. And I do have this weird reserved respect for Bertino. Like, I mean, I guess I would love it if he did something that was felt completely original. But he seems to really know his way around the horror genre. Because, like, maybe this shouldn't have worked, but I'm giving it a passing grade. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very ambivalent about it. Because all of, it's like he's got a real knack for directing scenes, but not really a knack for directing movies, <laughs> right? Like it's all of its parts are good, but it just has I don't know it 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 left me a little bit wanting. Like it could have been a great movie, but it was just merely a lot of great scenes that added up to a good movie. Yeah. It doesn't suck, and definitely for genre fans, have a look. Cthulhu. Cults. And all this 
Necronomicon. So Chad Farron, who is the writer and director of The Deep Ones, has recently had some sort of cheesy success with a deliberately funny and strange and kind of like on purpose stupid movie called Exorcism at 60,000 feet. The weird thing about watching The Deep Ones, especially as someone who's got a, such a soft spot for H.P. Lovecraft and the even some of the really truly terrible low budget attempts at uh, interpreting Lovecraft on film, like... I got this sinking feeling when I was watching this movie, like, maybe this should have been a comedy. Because maybe this works more effectively as a comedy. And maybe, like, maybe... <laughs> maybe that was the, the fix that they could have done in edit. Because this movie, played straight, just frankly does not work at all for me. But this movie, as an absurd comedy, or a statement on sort of sloppy, low-budget filmmaking, is at time just hysterical laugh out loud funny but not on purpose i don't think <laughs> yeah i mean it, it, the problem is it's it's actually i don't think i couldn't really recommend it as a bad movie um it, it, i don't think it's like the acting isn't great and the cinematography isn't great the production isn't great but the special uh, effects aren't it, great the acting's not great <laughs> yeah it's like a precocious student film. Yeah. Like, I don't know what to say. Like, it seems like one of those films that you make over two weeks or so, so everybody gets something for their demo reel. Um, I, I, I was hoping, well, I was hoping it would be better than it is, obviously, because it wasn't <laughs> very good. But I was also hoping it would be worse than it was. Right. But there was something a little bit plucky about it. <laughs> I think the thing that made me go, okay, everybody out of the pool, was when they introduced this doctor character who's clearly being played by a man. <laughs> so I, I was wondering if that was on purpose, because I thought it could just could have been a trans actor, maybe. Or they were trying to make, there's something off about this character, can we put our finger on it? But like, it just reads weird right away. Like, why did they make that choice? You're not fooling anyone. And like, yeah, later on when they show them all meeting, she's got these gill slits in her throat or whatever. So we know that she's part of it. But like, that that performance wasn't credible for a second. And it was ridiculous. Like, that's just a, a guy in women's clothes. It's obviously a guy in women's clothes. Like, like are we really supposed to take her seriously? Like, within the context so I of... the because I thought it might have just been a trans actor. Oh, I didn't feel um, that way. I thought he was just supposed to be weird. Where <laughs> she was supposed to be weird. Another possibility. The, the problem with movies like this that are basically student films is you always want to give the benefit of the doubt. Right. Like, you know, that's a choice, but not a great choice. But who knows? Like, who knows what moments in this film were choices and what moments in this film were just people fumbling along to try to stitch something together yeah well so there there was the uh so it starts with this i would say young couple they're not everybody in this movie was in their 40s uh but they're like at an airbnb or something and they're being greeted by the owners and then whatever they have a suspicious time and then like it does the next day it plays ominous music and it's doing like these hard cuts and like Dutch angles where we're supposed to realize that something's amiss. But 
like there's like this hard cut and this Dutch angle of like no skateboarding. Like, <laughs> what <laughs> is that to symbolize the evil of this uh, this neighborhood? And again, very classic form couple. They've lost a child. They're coming back on this vacation. They're going to try and start to have another kid, but they're in this fragile place. And on the precipice of this tragedy, a supernatural adventure is about to be put in front of them. And yeah, there's these interminably long scenes with the neighbors where there's one where they have a glass of wine when they first get there. And there's another one on a boat where he hypnotizes the husband. And both of those scenes just seem to go on forever okay so you forgot one which is the wife waking up the night after they drank the wine and she comes downstairs and they're eating eggs and it's like this trippy acid scene and again lots of dutch angles and my note was like yeah you guys took a big swing you tried to create a mood it didn't work but like god bless you but the story being told here about this cult getting their fingers on this this couple and uh, summoning Dagon from the depths that he may impregnate her and she can birth more squid children for like this is this is a terrible terrible thing that's going on. But all of the goofy rickety amateurness of the movie really deflates it of any stakes and makes it like impossible to take seriously. And well, and speaking of. Muppet Babies. Dagon was an adorable puppet yes. that might have even got away with it if it was like a half a shot here or there. But the, the final climactic scene of this adorable Dagon puppet raping this woman is like, oh, Kermit. <laughs> well, and look, the I love the movie Dagon, directed by Stuart Gordon, who's like the least subtle filmmaker ever, and like he does low budgets too. I'm not saying that it couldn't be done. I'm saying that they didn't do it here. But the really frustrating thing is, you're right. If it was a little bit worse, it would like enter this sort of realm of terribly hilariously awful, where you could like make some popcorn, invite people over, and actually enjoy laughing at it. But it doesn't quite achieve that for me. It just comes this uncomfortable middle ground where it's failing at being scary and being effectively made and sort of you know if it's it feels like not half-hearted uh lovecraft but completely ineffective lovecraft yeah i mean so there's some things that i'm gonna say in its defense because you know like whatever it was made on a twenty three hundred dollar budget <laughs> they, they did what they could uh it, it didn't there's nothing about it that's especially um like it feels like an episode of goosebumps or something except <laughs> one uh it opens with a scene of full frontal nudity yeah. and it just keeps that train rolling which uh you know i, I you love to see it Honest, um, like, let's be real. It's one of the ingredients of, like, horror, the forbidden things. Sex, violence, stuff we're not supposed to see. Again, I'm not going to take points away for gratuity. Not in this movie, anyway. And actually, it seems like it didn't quite seem as leering and exploitative as it might have. Because so much of this had to do with pregnancy rituals. Like, it, it seemed more like Wiccan sex cult or like you know naked wiccans dancing in the moonlight it wasn't it wasn't particularly it, it didn't feel 
quite so creepy to me as it could have. Until the Dagon puppet, it was... Well, I guess there's the sex scene when they first get to the B&B or whatever, but uh, the, it was sort of cult cult nudity, like in Hereditary. There's a lot of nudity in Hereditary, but none of it's particularly sexy, right? Two, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I thought our leading couple actually had a pretty good chemistry. Um, it was this this second movie from this list where, like, yeah, it's, you know, they're weirdly sweet. You feel some affection between these two people. So, like, yeah, good on them. Yeah. Um, th- I-, I thought the, the, the husband had good and bad moments in the, the movie. I really didn't buy the hypnotism scene. I don't know if it was the writing or the directing or whatever, but he smokes like half a joint or they must have put some evil Cthulhu magic inside of it. Well, and then he shines he, a lighter he in his face. Light. He kept saying, look at the light, look at the light. Yeah. And he almost hypnotized the wife. I think there was some sort of like Cthulhu light that was, was helping it along. It. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, his turn from, you know, completely being on side with his wife to sort of just being this hollow zombie. I don't know if I completely bought it, <laughs> but I think I might've been already checked out of the movie. It, it is one of those movies that kind of announces its amateur qualities pretty early. So another thing that I had, um, go, uh, that I thought it had going for it is, um, Earlier this year, for whatever reason, I really got into the original 1970s Stepford Wives. I, I read the book and I watched the movie. I don't know why, what impulse it was, but I actually kind of liked it. I thought it was it, it struck a pretty good tone. And the plot of this, you know, for a Lovecraft adaptation called The Deep Ones, was way more Stepford Wives than it was either Call of Cthulhu or Shadows Over Innsmouth. Yeah. Um, and I thought it, it had sort of that 1970s Stepford Wives feeling and and like, you know, the husband is just the first one to get it and then he acts all weird and then you've got like the best friend that comes and, you know, she's going to be an ally but then obviously she's not sticking around. <laughs> no, she'll and, be fine. They'll know, be best friends forever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're going to be best friends forever. That's right. Um, yeah, I don't know if I like. I'm kind of stretching to find good things about it, but like, it wasn't that bad. I mean, unfortunately, it wasn't that bad, but there was nothing really good about it. So there is some things that kind of worked. You know, it's just uh, I saw it. It was I think like twelve ninety nine. It was based off of H.P. Lovecraft. There's lots of tentacles on the cover, and I bought it on a hope and a whim. And, you know, there's been worse adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft, but there's been way, way better. Uh, and I just, like, I don't know who I would recommend the movie to. Like, I just can't imagine saying, you, you definitely should check out the deep ones. It's just not something that would comfortably roll off my tongue, you know? It's the problem. You can't recommend it to a Lovecraft fan, because it really, I mean... Aside from Dagon, have there really been good adaptations of H.P. Lovecraft? Like, there's been movies that try to capture the vibe, but all adaptations of Lovecraft suck. But it's unfortunately not even the worst one. Like, it's not, again, it's not a fun, bad movie. Most of the most successful Lovecraft movies are not actually strictly based on Lovecraft, but they're just Lovecraftian. In the Mouth of Madness, or last time you did the show, we did The Void. 
that might as well have been an H.P. Lovecraft story, right? It wasn't, yeah. but it, like, <laughs> let's be real. The influence was strong. <laughs> yeah, it's like those, you know, those Weird Al songs that aren't a direct parody, but they're a parody of a genre, or they're a parody of the vibe. Yeah, that's like, right. Those are the H.P. Lovecraft stuff, things that work. And I think it might be. Uh, as much as it pains me to admit, H.P. Lovecraft just wasn't a good author, and he didn't write good stories. But he, he had great ideas, ideas. <laughs> concepts, and ideas. Like the whole this movie is based on the writings of. Mm. It talks about Dagon, so In His Mouth is definitely a big influence. But you couldn't call it an adaptation of In His Mouth either. <laughs> it's it's more similar to Call of Cthulhu, actually. Like the cultists, the things that they're chanting are like directly off the page from Call of Cthulhu. Uh, yeah, you do see the adorable Dagon puppet, but really it's 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 a vibe adaptation. I honestly think if like the neighbors they were almost already there with the performance, they could just bump them up a little bit, make the the characters a little bit more bumbling, have some more gratuity for no good reason, and all of a sudden this movie becomes hilarious and worth recommending. <laughs> like and either Way more bad tentacles or way fewer bad tentacles. <laughs> but the, the, the ratio was just off a little bit. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I am I don't like to be this mean about it. I, I, I wanted this movie to be good, but, I, I yeah, I'm just... <laughs> and you know what? This will probably happen again. There'll be another release of some H.P. Lovecraft tentacle monster. And I'll be like, ooh, maybe this one. <laughs> right? Sucker. I would say this movie fulfilled its role in that everybody involved got a professional credit on their CV. Some people got a couple of minutes on their demo reels. It was never it, like it's hard. It's hardly even a real movie. <laughs> well, that is not a glowing recommendation either. Is it? <laughs> it's not topping my list. I'll, I'll, I'll tip my hand. The pit has spoken. It is an honor to be chosen to be with it in this world. You know that. But without the blood, the waters, the pit would heal no one. I want to see if you've been fooling around before you shame all of us. It'll make it right. It always does. Has the pit ever taken a baby? They're going to test you. And you better blame it on somebody else. I don't care who. Now, Dwight is going to search his place again. And if he does not find a jug face, well, then we wait. We wait until the pit guides his hand to make another. What if the face I see ain't the right one? Never been wrong before, have you? Dwight! What did you do? You think you can just turn your back on us? Maurice! You alright? It's all my fault. Whose blood is that? Uh, Jugface. This is from Glass Eye Picks Production Company, which uh, is run by uh, Larry Fessenden, who I'm a huge fan of, who's a writer-director of horror movies. And I recently, in the podcast, reviewed with Mireille, uh, 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 
good friend of mine, this movie called Darling, which he'd also produced. Same kind of idea, super micro-budget in it, its production, but a talented cast and a, a sort of a singular vision behind it. They, he likes finding new writer-directors. This case, it's Chad Crawford Kinkle, and it's sort of about this backwood community that has its own uh, religion based around this pit <laughs> and they all worship this pit and have these weird rules and rituals around it uh the most creepy of is this uh, guy who has a kiln will produce he has these visions and produce these jugs with a face from the community on it and if you end up with your face on this mug you get sacrificed to the pit and that's just how it works and the movie yeah, and just to say that the, the community has rituals based on the pit, the pit has some sort of dark magic to it, um, and it sort like it gives them. It has curative properties, right? They they keep it fed whenever it wants somebody sacrificed to it, and it will it will. It's never entirely clear what it will do for them, mm. um, but like the the guy that does the jugs, he's like. I don't know, some designated jug savant, but he goes into this weird trance. He doesn't even know when he's created a jug. He just feels gross, and the next morning he sees it. Yeah, he's made the jug, and whoever's face is on that is next to go into the pit. What I like about this, and all of the movies actually on this list, is none of them ask us to question whether or not the evil in it is real. All of yeah. these movies are absolutely right, straight face. No, there's evil in this world. <laughs> Keep your eyes open. Bad shit's going to and happen. This one actually did a really good job right from the credits because there was like this animated, it was like Pilgrim era, people discovering this area and being cured of the smallpox and then digging a pit and sacrificing somebody. And you kind of know by the time the credits end, there is something in a pit. You're not going to have to faff around with is it real or is it not. Like these are the rules. It's pretty simple, uh, which works really well because this is, a character piece much more than it's a plot piece and I think the horror that works for me I mean there's lots of other things on the surface going on but the kind of moral of the story at least in my interpretation this time is accept your fucking fate <laughs> this uh, this young woman discovers that her face is on one of the, the jugs she's next for the pit and she doesn't like that idea so she hides the the mug and the community is put into uproar about it and there's a lot of negative consequences <laughs> um and yeah it kind of leads to like i don't know if she knew already or if she just always kind of expected she's also pregnant yes and so she's got a certain amount of loyalty to her fetus because it's not until later in the movie where there's a kind of a uncomfortable miscarriage scene and i say that wondering how there could be a comfortable <laughs> yeah exactly but it's an especially uncomfortable miscarriage scene. And then she kind of has to confront the fact that, no, I'm not doing this for my baby. It's it's mostly for me at this point. Yeah. But the idea that the moral of the story or the theme that we're visiting, like the, 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 the movie wraps up to is suck it up and accept your fate is like the worst bow tie ending to a fairy tale type of story that you'd ever want to see. It is a, a very bleak. I'm sorry, say that again, brother? 
Nice try, asshole. Nice try, asshole. Exactly. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It has a strong personality. This movie, like the the the, they're not wrong turn or deliverance hill folk. They they have like they're definitely their own tight knit community. And and Sean Young and Larry Fessenden are are, are big characters, but. They're not uninteresting, and uh, it's kind of an interesting little world that we get a peek at in this movie. But you're right, it's much more about the character and her personal journey than, like you said, about the dark and the wicked, where it's just a bunch of set pieces. Because there's not a lot of quote-unquote set pieces to Jugface. It's sort of this sort of no, sustained vibe. There really aren't. And also, like, you're right. Like, this would be very easy to be like you know, these yokels in the woods, whatever, these Southern Baptists, or, you know, they're just this these crazy religious inbred people, but, like, they're right. There's no question that there's something in the pit. There's no question that there are forces bigger than them. So there are people that are willing to play by the rules and then some that want to buck them. And you can kind of be like... Yeah, I get where she's coming from. I don't want to get my throat slit so I could get bled out in a pit. But yeah. on the other hand, there's some sort of supernatural thing in the pit, and it will hurt us if we don't do that and help us if we do. <laughs> it goes back to Star Trek, man. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's a demonstrable. Defying the rules causes serious negative consequences that is arguably worse than one girl getting her throat slit over a pit. I don't think it's arguably worse, considering how many people get mauled by this pit. Yeah. Punished her. And, uh, yeah, it's just not been satiated. And if, the longer it goes on without having its intended sacrifice, the worse things become for the whole community. Um, yeah, I gotta say, like, the... Um, sort of semi-abusive Appalachian yokel parents, uh, Larry Fessenden. Uh, every scene that he was in, he, I, I don't say he stole, but he was a big presence, and he wasn't an evil guy. Like, he was sometimes doing things that you don't want him to do. He seemed like he was being a little bit harder on our point-of-view character, but he seemed to be a loving father in his own way. And Sean Young, who is quite cruel in a lot of ways, you kind of get where she's coming from. Like, there's nobody in this movie that doesn't have a point of view, which is always really nice for me. And it seems like the longer you live in the world where you, these, these sacrifices to the pit happens, the weirdly, the more uh, normal it becomes to you. Like, uh, Sustin does have his sort of normal dad moments, but on top of that... If the pit needs something, he's going to be the guy to do it, you know? Um, there's a weirdly, another weirdly touching relationship between our protagonist and the maker of the jug faces. They get tied up like together for a while, yeah. But we know, like, we, we find out that he's in love with her, although not in, like, a... I don't know what. We There's not, like, a lot of... The movie doesn't spend a lot of time with shots of him pining over her, but you just get this sense of there's a real affection, um, which it kind of, kind of reads as like an uncle affection or like an older brotherly affection. But it turns out he's into her, but he he's not doing anything because, you know, he knows she's not into him. 
Um, well, there's an age gap, and she's an innocent little child, but still, he might be better for her than, say, her brother. <laughs> yeah, and so as we learn very early that she's pregnant with her brother's child, and I guess you could say her and her brother love each other. Like, that seems like a pretty genuine relationship. It's a little bit icky. Yeah, a little bit. There's a little bit of ick there. Yeah, I will agree with that. <laughs> but there's also, like, you know, whatever. It's a community of 20 people. It's going to happen. Yes, and I can see how them having a hard time recruiting new members to their community. They're only losing members, and they're not gaining. <laughs> so I think well, this will be a problem moving forward. That's a question right off the bat. Like, how do they keep them... How do they keep their population like what is their population yeah you only see like what 10 people eight people yeah well there's a little bit of a village vibe to it and it's not like it's not necessarily a period movie but they still seem to be living this weird pioneer lifestyle right mm-hmm. um i don't well, know well we know that it's not because she had she does a pregnancy test that's right but there's no cell phones or televisions or or, or anything like that they live these farm commune sort of lives and live in servitude to the pit um like i say it has a a very sort of strong vibe and and environment that it exists in and and it's sort of uncomfortable um i really got into it but like i i wonder like is it more of a conversation piece than it is a visceral horror movie like so it's usually not a particularly visceral horror movie the throat cutting scenes were pretty visceral to me but when her brother who had some sort of a fever was asked to go into the pit to get himself healed and you know like at this point she's fooled the community that somebody else was destined for the pit they did another sacrifice we fucking know that it's her and that scene of him having this bath in those mucky waters of the pit was really uncomfortable but for some reason it was more uncomfortable because he was completely naked for me like just there's something like just every part of my body tensed up when he climbed into that little mud hole i was like relieved when it disemboweled him yes (laughs) (laughs) at least that was something (laughs) well and again the movie does a lot with a little like never you can't say enough of what a good cast can do for you. Like, they didn't have enough to show us whatever this thing was in the pit, but it had enough to make us believe in it, <laughs> you know? And it didn't feel cheap the way the deep ones felt cheap, you know what I mean? Like, it feels more like a real movie somehow. In fact, a lot of these were quite low-budget movies, but they just did a good job. Like, they, this one, I think, really compensated... Um, Part of, part of how it compensated, I think, was having a really original premise. Uh, the, the performances were good, and the, it didn't get too tropey. Like, all of the things that we would have assumed, you know, like with this inbred redneck community, they stayed away from. Yeah, uh, and the, again, we've been there. We've covered that ground. So how do you make it more interesting? Uh, you sort of get surprised by the humanity intelligence of some of these characters because you just expect them to say, yes, sir, <laughs> I'll do that for you real nice. You know, <laughs> I want to cut as many throats as I can. Uh, no, that's not the world that they're living in. 
And I do think this is representative of the type of movie that Glass Eye Picks tries to promote. Uh, a singular vision from a, a writer-director done on a low budget, but with the means to get the job done. I don't think this is going to win over everybody in the horror crowd, but for the people who have this sort of flavor or this sort of potent psychological ugliness sort of seeping into you and it doesn't overstay its welcome it's less than 90 minutes long like it it, it, it sort of tells you this ugly folk tale and then gets out of there you know? yeah and it's exactly the movie that it intended to be so it's not going to be for everybody but it's for everybody involved and i think they did a really good job of what they did <laughs> what are you trying to do and how successful are you at doing it? And I think they're trying to make us uncomfortable and tell us a backwoods story that we haven't heard before. And in that respect, they are completely successful. And I would say universally good performances in it. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't want to dismiss anyone. I kind of focused on Fessenden and, and Young because they're kind of the names of the movie. But yeah, there's no weak steps taken from the cast at all. Because most of it is the, the woman whose name I don't know and the jar maker whose name I don't know, but their relationship is kind of weirdly powerful. I just recently watched the movie Where the Crawdads Sing, and this is basically the movie that that should have been. Oh, wow. Like it captures all of what that movie intended to capture, but uh, it just does a way better job. Our lead actress is Lauren Ashley Carter, and I believe the gentleman you're talking about was Sean Bridgers. They don't credit the cast. Yes, yeah. Sean Bridgers, yeah. Yeah, um, but no, they were great, and uh, they, they had a lot uh, to play between the relationship, especially the time they spend tied up together waiting for their fate and uh, the possibilities that they project. But uh, no, I, I really liked it. It, it overperformed for me. God, no. Me neither. Adam! Can you check the attic, please? The roof's falling in. It's an old place. Everything's okay. Okay? You're making people nervous. He's in the forest again, is he? He's trespassing. It's dangerous for him. They believe that the forest that you're trampling on Belongs to the hollow. Hollow. Fairies, banshees, baby stealers. So you a believer? Mr. Hedgins, this is in London. Things here go bumping at night. Just baby dreams. Stay here. Lock the door. Adam! Wait! Wait, Adam, there's something back there! trespass upon them they'll trespass upon you all right the hallow is a very irish horror movie directed by corin hardy and written or co-written by corin hardy as well this movie got uh, some eyes to it and he ended up getting hired uh to do the nun this entry in the conjuring universe which made a lot of money and was quite successful but nowhere near i'm sorry i, I well, I saw the nun in the theater. Uh, it was way worse than this. Oh yeah, uh, like, it was just bad. <laughs> yeah. 
I really, really like the Hallow, and I am pretty indifferent to the Nun, but uh, I'm increasingly kind of indifferent to the Conjuring universe. I felt like it kind of started strong, but then just was the same. <laughs> um, yeah, but, I'm scared. I didn't want to necessarily talk about the Conjuring universe, but like, here's this guy who made his sort of little indie horror movie, and it got him his ticket to Hollywood, and hooray for that, and hopefully he gets to make a more interesting movie than The Nun going forward. But that was a big win for him, and The Hallow was a big win for him. The Hallow just happens to be good, whereas The Nun is whatever. <laughs> uh, at least in my opinion. I don't want to put words in your mouth. No, I think The Hallow is... I think it's, like, objectively good. I yeah. think it would be hard to find somebody that doesn't think it's good. But uh, like we've been saying again and again through all these movies, it's incredibly familiar. A uh, couple with a brand new baby come to this remote forest in Ireland where all the locals are warning them that it's not a safe place for their kids and they're doing everything wrong. There's the fairy folk in the woods. Yeah, be, beware the fairy folk. And they get there and what are all these brass iron bars all over the house? Let's take those down. And they're like doing everything wrong. They're doing everything wrong. In a worse okay, execution. So the first thing where you've got like the father out in the woods with the little baby on his backpack and he goes into a creepy murder barn <laughs> and there's like this horribly killed deer it's like got all this black mold fungus sticking its face to the walls like even if you're fearless that's not a great place for a baby i'm not a father i don't know for sure but i think in what to expect when you're expecting they say don't go into a creepy murder barn with your baby well as a father of two males if you can take your kid into a murder house you take your kid into a murder <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I don't want to tell you how to raise your child. <laughs> no, don't be telling me how to do my business. But it is this sort of thing where, like, it's one of these bad trips movies where they go to a place that they shouldn't and do everything wrong. And in a poorly executed movie, we'd be screaming at the screen saying, what are you guys doing? But there's great detail to the movie. And I, I consider this a compliment, but when we finally get to glimpses of these fairy folk, you know, they're not friendly little leprechauns or angels hanging out smoking pipes on toadstools. They're like these ugly, terrible Guillermo del Toro type design creatures. And uh, they play dirty and they want to steal your baby. And there's nothing cute about them. There's nothing fun about them. Like uh, the movie is genuinely creepy. Um, I will say it's super dark. Like, I wouldn't recommend watching it projected. I, like, watch it on a good TV, but in a dark room. But it's deliberately hard to see what's going on at times in a way to amp the horror, in a way to make you question, did you see that? Was that them? Or was that a trick of the light? And, yeah, to, to just completely strip away the sort of whimsical, cute idea of fairy folk. These are capital M monsters. So, so, I think this is a very good movie. So I'm going to quibble here, but this is like quibbles with a movie that I think is very, very good that could have been great. There was a couple of things that was just keeping me at arm's length a little bit. Uh, one of them was the creature design. Right? I found the creatures a little generic for my taste. Oh, really? Like I think you could have done something interesting with... And, and I don't know what, I don't have a strong vision of this necessarily, but something more surreal, like like fairies, but creepy. And, you know, like, I don't mean the leprechaun movie, but surely there's a happy medium yes. where they don't 
acted like they looked like monsters from an episode of Black Mirror. Right. Um, um, and I, I think they could have had a little bit more fun with them. Um, and the other thing too is there was this great body horror uh, angle to it, which I really really liked, but. I didn't really like how they tried to science it up with, you know, talking about this kind of like this real fungus that infects ants and gets ants to kill themselves. Yeah. Um, I can't remember exactly how it gets them to crawl onto the top of grass and get eaten by birds. So they yeah. spread it or whatever it is. And our hero is a mycologist. So he's in the forest looking for fungus and like, it, he, the movie gives us a scientific explanation for what these things are, but I think if they had sort of steered into one, the body horror would have been more creepy if it had been less black ooze and more mushroom because right. there's nothing more body horror than mushroom. And two, like, don't you don't need the science angle. Just have, like, mushroom creatures. Yeah. Matango, this thing. Um well, I don't know. I didn't mind the design of the creatures. Uh, I thought like they were deliberately kept in the dark, probably for budgetary reasons, but it, it worked out to the movie's benefit unnecessarily. The no, body no, in the dark, it was perfect. It's when we saw them that they were just like sort of screeching monsters. They just right. didn't strike me as especially imaginative. But uh, the body horror thing worked for me, especially because like right out the gate, he gets it in the eyeball, right? Like he's looking through the, the, the keyhole, I think it is, to see what what's going on out there. And the thing stabs him right in his eye. And it's so brutal, <laughs> especially because like they set him up. He's this environmentalist. He's this scientist. And he's there because he wants to do some sort of preservation for the area or, or preparation for the area because it, it, people are trying to mow it down or anything. So they set this sort of plot point that maybe, you know, maybe the, the, these fairy folk, if they're more like the traditional fairy folk that I saw when I was a kid, they would befriend him and they would find a way to save the forest together. But, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nope, <laughs> this is not Fern Gully at all, at all. And yeah, they want to steal this baby and uh, the assault on the house I found to be quite frightening. And uh, they're the little creatures again. We're in sort of gremlin, you know, critters territory where they it would be much harder to make them scary. Uh, there's a movie that sort of deals with these same sort of fairy folk, uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which I think is much less successful at making them frightening to me than The Hallow is. And I, it, they seem formidable. Like, they seem like if they set their sights on you, you're kind of fucked. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very weak against iron and light and fire but if you if they've got you in the forest in the dark you're fucked yeah but i do think there is this is my quibble with the it remakes where the, they made the clown too much of a monster so he lost like there's something in a surreal silliness that can make horror more horrifying which is why the original like 1990s like Tim Curry and clown makeup is infinitely scarier. And I think they could have done something here. Like the, 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 when we see these monsters, they're just a little too monstery for my taste. I guess I, I don't mind a monster. You know, the, uh, eighties anthology movie cat's eye with Drew Barry. I, I, I heard you talk about it on this podcast, but I've never seen it. All right. Well, Drew Barrymore has this little gnome creature that comes out of the hole in the wall and it's wearing like a jester's outfit and it has like weapons to its own size and it's abjectly ridiculous. 
and I love it. I, I love it. It's got a little bell jingling in its cap. Like, there's no reason this thing should exist. And um, I think that this is sort of a, a little bit more monstrous version of that. But they're still, like, little creature bugs. <laughs> like, And, like, you feel like they have their own community and, and, and sort of world that they communicate and live in together that we have no understanding of. But that would be as interesting a community as the community in, in Jugface, <laughs> for instance. They have a real personality to them. Like, I would love to explore this world more. Well, you I, see, and I, I, for me, it feels like the world has a personality, but when you see the creatures, they don't. Right. Like, the, 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 the mythos has a personality, and it's a great mythos. Uh, and when we see, like, these sort of fungal slime growths, or when our hero starts having these little mushrooms growing out of his face like that's really viscerally horrific but when he's in the cave with these things and they're just screeching monsters screeching at each other it loses me a tad yeah i don't entirely disagree but i don't think it hurts the movie that bad for me uh, i feel like this is a much more successful version of the dark one of the earlier movies that we reviewed like uh this has more monsters in its sort of story so that appeals to me generally but it just seems to hit the notes a little bit stronger. And, uh, you know, this father believes that these creatures are after his baby and for a point believes that they've switched his baby. And uh, ha having to try and convince people of that and the, the stakes and horror of that really keep you going in a way that sometimes the, the dark just felt like the tires were spinning in the mud. This one's moving. <laughs> yeah, so and one thing that's definitely... Uh, you've got to say is a huge plus is it, it takes about I don't know what 15 minutes to get going but the moment it gets going which is basically when his car stalls out in the forest in the you know like after he goes to town yeah it doesn't stop like it it it's just this relentless siege movie that just keeps going and going and yeah, they, like I said, they've done everything wrong. The place was actually prepared to withstand an attack when they got there, and they actively stripped it of that. <laughs> Dumbasses. Which was actually kind of a slight... Again, I'm picking on it. I think it's good. It's just It, it just could have been an A+. When you see this A+, on a horizon, and it falls short, it's a little extra frustrating. But this uh, house is also some sort of an Airbnb situation. And one, there the person that owns it is saying um, uh, really angry, like, you guys won't listen, or blah, 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 like, you should never be there. Well, like, don't rent it to them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, this could have been a really short movie where this just, you burn down the house. Yeah. Uh, it's such a problem. And two, Nobody goes to like a rental property and takes out all of the steel in you know like the whatever guard cages in front of the windows if their landlord says don't do this you yeah. don't violate terms of contract. And it's so a lot of like, work if you're just gonna have to put it back up before you leave. Well, <laughs> there's just like a slight idiot plot thing here that I, they could have they could have worked around it, but they needed to work around it a little bit. Well, look, if it's a B-plus instead of an A-plus, I will take a B-plus horror movie any day of the week. 
I think it's better than a B plus. Like I think it's good. It's just it's extra frustrating because it could have been perfect. Yeah, and it fell short of that. Well, as far as first features go, and as far as monster movies go, and as far as atmospheric movies go, like this doesn't feel low budget or amateurish to me at all. This feels like fully professional. And really, really good performances. Not again, not a bad performance anywhere. Um, for as much of an action horror as this is, it also really relied on the chemistry of its two leads, and particularly, I don't know, the male lead, whose name, I don't know, I don't know if he's been in other things, but he, he had a real charisma to him. He, he carried a lot of the movie. These are really Irish names, so I, I don't even want to attempt them. Joseph Malway and Bejona Nakovic. <laughs> Are the lead couple, I believe. Uh, it's a, it's an incredibly Irish movie. In the same way, I was talking about the dark being very Welsh and very specific to the sort of folk tales and the traditions of the region. Uh, this movie is doing that just way more successfully. Yeah, and I, I like it, it is a successful movie. Uh, for all of my nitpicks, I don't want to give the impression that you didn't like it because this is definitely one. Um, that I would give like a full-on recommend. It's, yeah. it's definitely worth seeing. No, there's there's not much bad to say about it. And uh, like I said, I'm sort of putting a flag in the ground with this director. I'm not going to take too many points away for the nun. I'm, I'm pretty sure that was a for-hire job. The script was written for him. Like, you know, he did what he could. You know, like every 15 minutes, you got to have a jump scare. Yeah. Like, you know. Whether we need it or not. <laughs> Uh, is there anything else you want to say about The Hollow? Have we given a short um, um It had a really weird tonal ending. I don't know if you watched the whole credit scene. Uh, but basically the dad dies, the mom escapes. You know, With the, the baby. The baby that she's taking care of is a changeling, but then the dad unswitches the baby. She gets out of there. And then you get like this weird victory music as we see this mass deforestation happening. And having gone through this drama with this couple, we know that it's a good thing that this forest is getting taken down. But just having those lumber trucks and like having this forest stripped clean, it's like, I don't know, there's something about that music that doesn't feel quite right to me. Well, and are, are they being unleashed upon us now, or whatever neighborhood or, or, or whatever being grown there? Are they going to have their own problems there? Like, is the Hallow 2 these these ancient creatures in the modern world? Who knows? So that's exactly when the movie goes too far. Because right. when that weird deforestation happy scene was happening, uh, I went to the washroom, and it went on for a long time, and then I came back, and on one of the trees you see like this black slime which is this fungus that's been infecting people and then a monster jumps towards the screen and goes yes oh really really (laughs) but again we're we're picking bits here yeah no no Uh, i think mostly we're agreed the movie works way more than it doesn't and uh like i say i uh I like the vibe of it a great deal. There's a real darkness to it. And not a lot of undercutting it with humor, which a lot of the other movies were trying to varying degrees of success. This sort of goes dark and stays there. Yep. Uh, it's a very earnest movie. Um, I, it just occurred to me now, I think I've said more 
negative things about the hollow and more positive things about the deep one. I think I'm just being a contrarian here. <laughs> that sort of thing happens on this show, man. We know not to take this personal. Uh, anyway, good movie. Well, let's see how these guys rank. for the most part this was an interesting bunch of movies I, I had a lot of bad things to say about the deep ones but there was some sort of fun about uh, the experience and talking about it anyway but um, for these six bad magic movies what was your least favorite and why yeah so I would say first of all uh, this is a list that I was quite grateful for uh, upon having watched it there was no movie here that I didn't get something out of it um, Obviously, this is we're sadly not going to go zero for six. I feel like I don't know what, like a parent who is like proud of a toddler for being able to use the potty or something like it's a really low standard. Uh, but you know, it, it, there were some things that it did okay, and it it, it felt like an earnest movie in some ways for me uh four and five are just in perpetual motion they could completely switch um around with each other but um five i'm going to put the dark it was not a bad movie by any stretch it was far better than i thought it would be when i started to watch it uh and i didn't and none of these I felt like it wasted my time it was just a tad on the formulaic side uh, but mad props to it for making me feel gross before going to bed last night so good job <laughs> thank you for that uh, and then uh, four would be the dark and the wicked uh, which again it could flip with the dark depending on my day uh, because it wasn't wasn't really a movie it was a bunch of set pieces but each of the set pieces was really good uh i liked even though it was in texas which i don't think is considered the midwest it had a vibe of midwestern horror that i like three was hallow uh i thought it was a great movie uh full recommendations but i had some quibbles as we've just heard so i won't i won't read to Jarface which I don't know that I would recommend to everybody but it was really original to me it had a particular vibe 
the performances were stellar across the board and it was just not a, not a movie I had seen before right. um, and would strongly recommend if you like if you like horror movies that don't rely on jump scares I think I think um, Jarface is good and then uh, anything for Jackson was a total surprise for me when I when I sat down to watch it at four o'clock this afternoon, <laughs> I was not particularly expecting to like it, but I kind of loved it start to finish. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck, man. We're so goddamn close. Again, it's the same story over and over and over again. The first, like, two-thirds of your list, I'm like, yep, yep, oh, no, you're on it for sure, buddy. But then we just have this one little quibble, of course. It was, yeah, it was, it was two and three, and... <laughs> The Halloween jug face, or the two. Yeah. You kept on saying jar face, but I didn't oh, I want to interrupt you. I wrote down jar face, but it, jug face. It is jug face, yeah. No, and again, uh, the, it's a close thing, but uh, damn it. It's one of these days, brother. <laughs> I swear, it's going to happen for you. <laughs> I, I, I sometimes get tempted just to make the last second switch on your favor, but it just, I got to be real with you. We've got to... We gotta respect rank and review. <laughs> this free podcast deserves, you know, to be treated seriously. <laughs> and honestly, I would say that Jugface and Hallow are close. Not one, like one of them isn't better than the other. It's just kind of what you're into. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna go through the list anyway, as is my right for the show. <laughs> but yes, the deep ones is at the bottom, and yes, I I said that with a few changes it might work as a comedy. But uh, as far as being a good adaptation of the H.P. Lovecraft vibe, I can't really recommend it. As far as me saying that it's a professionally executed movie, I can't really recommend it. I. I have some affection for what the movie wants to be, but I have to be real about what the movie is, and the movie is sixth place pretty easily for me. <laughs> to continue in agreeing with you is The Dark. Again, and I love what the movie's trying to be, and I think that there are really great scenes in the movie, but uh, especially watching it round two, a lot of its power was diminished for me, and I just sort of waited for the story to play out and... In that way, it had no surprises left to reveal. Um, but again, if this is your type of thing, the sort of folk horror angle to things, I think that there are people who could really get a good meal out of the dark. I just didn't this time. To stay in agreement, the dark and the wicked. Um, yeah, it's a movie made out of its set pieces, as you say, but they're, for the most part, really strong set pieces. Like... This is a couple of images, the fingers and that ghostly woman stabbing herself and the naked lady in the barn, these sort of lingered after I'd watched the movie. Um, what does it all mean and what, where did it all come from? It's not movies, the movie doesn't even try to answer it and that's sort of what brings it down to the bottom half of the list. But if you're a fan of horror movies, this is a pretty decent one. And honestly, if you're a fan of horror movies, just keep your eye on Bertino. I think he's got, he's got game. I put Jug Place in third place, and I, I, why is it lower than the Hallow? Maybe because of my monster movie thing. I like the I like the vibe of the Hallow more and uh, the great atmosphere of it. Um, jug Face has a strong personality, and if I could have my own jug with my own face on it, like if someone could make and send me that, and I would fucking totally do that. Like. <laughs> Good job with they're really creepy but you could tell who the face belonged to like it was really neat i big points for the props department and again it was a low budget affair so it could have gone the other way in that um 
there's an ugliness to the jug face that uh, might, you know, take some enjoyment factor from it. But I really want to sing its praises because I don't think enough people have seen it. So if you can get your hands to jug face, it's like 80 minutes of your life and it's totally worth it. Um, but for me, the hallow just it was like such a, a feast for a horror creature movie fan. It, it does those suspense movies really well. There's lots of ouch moments that make you go, oh, God damn, that would hurt so bad. And uh, it, it, it plays with you in that way. And again, this is another one of these new directors that I will keep my eyes on. <laughs> Hopefully Hollywood doesn't totally fuck him up. Or, or maybe he does a couple of shitty Hollywood movies and he goes back to Ireland and does a really great Irish horror movie again. Well, I think one of the things we're seeing is that horror movies made outside of the U.S. are just better. A lot of the time, it's true. They have more personality, for sure. <laughs> and anything for Jackson, man, I, it's, uh, it's hard to articulate the accomplishment of the movie because I do think that it's funny, and I do think, in a weird way, it's sweet. <laughs> but it's also like one of the grimmest horror movies like it's so ugly it also very distinctly canadian in flavor and in cast and that might have given it bonus points for me but i'm not going to apologize for it i think I, anything I don't think that's it. I, again i think and this is going to my love of j-horror k-horror um you know horror from the uk American horror just doesn't tend to be that great. It's good for jump scares, and they had a good run with slasher movies, but it's too formulaic. And the whole thing about horror is it's got to be weird. It's got to be, like, not quite what you're expecting. You want something unstable and uncertain about the narrative, so you don't... You kind of know what you're going to get, but you can never be comfortable. (laughs) Yeah. So that's my list, and man... As usual, we're just like so close. It's like irritating, but I mean, no, no fights here. I think we're all more or less on the same page. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's essentially the same list. I could have, I could have flipped four and five, and I could have flipped two and three. Yeah, it's just the whole premise of the show is flawed deeply. Yes, <laughs> the problem is with you. Well, um, happy holidays, happy new year. Thank you so much for doing yet another uh, episode of uh, Rankin Review. This is the second last episode of the season, uh, and uh, now I have to watch a bunch of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies to get ready <laughs> for the season finale. So get ready. Well, Bloodsport's the only one, Jean-Claude, that I've ever reviewed for the show. But, you know, get ready for Hard Target. You but you might want to rewatch Hard Target before the next time. <laughs> I think you and I watched that in the 1990s. That would probably be the last time I saw it, but yeah. (laughs) Anyway, a little sneak preview of what's to come. We're going to have a season finale dedicated to the Van Damme. Alright, well, I'm a little offended that I didn't get the season finale, but I will uh, forgive you because you gave me a good list of movies that I never otherwise watched. Two solid lists in a row. Maybe I'll have to give you some real howlers next time. (laughs) I think you've given me enough of those. (laughs) Hey, you pick the lists. I just make them. (laughs) Have a good one, brother. I'm going to sign us off.
And so episode 224 is in the rearview mirror. What did you think? Did we give a fair shake to these six bad magic movies? Was there a better theme to name the episode after? What would you rank the movies as? You can send your feedback to rankandreview at gmail.com. R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. The website, rankandreview.ca. I, as always, am your host and random Canadian, Larry Parsons, and I'm very grateful for your ears.